this uh, this little talky bit is going to be punctuated by um, loud screams at some stage. Maybe mine, maybe Sam's, we'll find out. But when you get a child to sleep, you just leave them asleep. Successful parenting morning so far, one child asleep, the other child has procured some knickers off someone and is now flaunting them around the building. Oh, he's got pants on now. Woohoo! Yeah. And we can claim him. That is our child. We can claim him again. Good. Rather than saying, whose child is that and do they have parents? Tut, tut. This is one of those um, living close to the edge parenting weeks, uh, which means that sometimes you prepare a talk and then four days later you find yourself on a Sunday morning looking at a bit of paper going, I hope I wrote some good stuff earlier. So we'll, we'll, we'll find out. But, you know, it's a very generous community and no one really listens anyway. So um, we are talking... Uh, we're, t- we're talking about the spirit at the moment. Um, what's that? Oh, yeah, shh. Just soothe people off to sleep. And then make a really loud noise and wake them up again. Monty Python had this idea once. This is a very important tangent. Of um, slowly over their program, um, turning, to, like over their half-hour TV program, just turning the volume down slowly the entire way. And so that people would turn up their sets. And then making a really loud noise at the end of it and like scaring the crap out of everyone. But the BBC wouldn't let them do it. The bastards. That's the first B in BBC. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about the spirit, and it's one of our long series where we just talk for... And we have an ongoing conversation where we start sharing what our experiences with something is, um, often a topic that we have some distance from, um, and we start sharing about what our hopes for our relationship with it would be, um, what our difficulties with our relationship with it would, with it would be, um, and then we start exploring like what our tradition and the text might say and how that lines up with our experience and see like what our ongoing relationship as a community with it might look like. And this one is about the Spirit. And we're up to a bit um, where we're in the New Testament, and this talk kind of goes off last week's talk. So if you weren't here or didn't hear that, you can just try and make what sense of it you can. Or remember this bit and then jigsaw puzzle the other bit into it later on in the week. You can try, have a go at that. But we're talking about the bit in the early church where these weird gifts show up. Um, And last week we were talking about how they function, not just what they were and what they did, but uh, kind of how the New Testament and the early church itself understands what they were trying to do. Um, One of the things that we talked about last week was the way that um, voice was given, when the Spirit showed up, voice was given to formerly voiceless people. So you've got these new communities forming around this encounter with Jesus and this um, experience of the Spirit, and then Within these communities, there's all the natural hierarchies that exist between men and women and slave and free and the different racial groups and nationalities in those communities, the different status groups within those communities. And the Spirit shows up and starts giving voice to and gifts to all the wrong kinds of people. And so there's this this inversion of power that happens that suddenly people who were outsiders suddenly start becoming these sites of the activity of God. And so people who, like in previous lives before they were in the church were considered subhuman, um, considered not worth listening to, considered powerless people, considered worthless. Um, Slaves, if you're a slave owner and you wanted to kill a slave, you could just kill kill the slave with no consequence whatsoever. Um, In the early church, however, these gifts are showing up and the way they viewed this was that God 
God's self was bursting forth in life through these people, which is a major challenge because all of a sudden, killing a vessel of God, killing a site where the divine exists, comes with some ethical <laughs> complications. Um, having to listen to formerly powerless people because they might have something to say on behalf of the divine was a huge challenge. And so Paul in Corinthians starts talking about not getting distracted by so much what the gifts, um, how the gifts are um, showing up, but what they're trying to do. And Paul's reading of it from what we discussed last week was that what they're trying to do is give voice to the voiceless, trying to subvert power structures, so trying to show that every person is a temple of the Holy Spirit and a site of the divine. Now, in our kind of like era, this doesn't sound that radical, but in the ancient world, this was such an extreme concept, it was hard to get your, hard to get your head around it. Um, and so Paul kind of begins to differentiate a little bit between the gifts that are showing up and the fruit. So what's coming of those gifts? Because, Russell, Russell, but because um, what happened really quickly is that people worked out that the people with power within the communities are no longer just the old hierarchies, but are the people who are manifesting these gifts. And so they showed up and started giving these incredibly long messages in other languages and angelic tongues and trying to take over and essentially using the church for their own ego trip. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, um, I don't like snippy Paul most of the time. I find him arrogant and unhelpful um, and, you know, a first century man. But sometimes when he stands up on behalf of the powerless, his, his backbone and his sass um, actually really comes in handy. And he just goes to town, essentially on these people who are just like guitar soloing um, all, the, all, all their way through the ancient community. And so they're, they're just taking over with these like completely pointless and meaningless um, show-off times, which are quietening and dampening down the diversity of, of voices in the community. Essentially, they're grabbing power and taking over. Oh, this might be our baby transition. One moment. We'll put some elevator music on. Doom, 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 doom. Bit of an intimidating way to wake up. It's Hemi that likes everyone looking at him, not Sam. Wow, those are some pants. Can you take this to Mama? Okay, I'll put it over here. Thanks for your help, though. We're not exactly the Von Traps. No, no, you're not, definitely not going to have a turn of this one today because you've had lots of turns of it in the other weeks, and this week it's Daddy's turn to do some talking. Was that okay? If I share with you, you can have a turn. I tell you what, when we're finished doing our talky bit, I'll share with you and let you have a long turn. How's that? Good. Okay, cool. How about you go and do some drawing? No. Okay. What are you going to do instead? Are you just going to wait there patiently? No worries. I won't be very long. Do you know how long um, 75 minutes is? No? Okay. You're about to find out. Um, So the way, the way they began to understand what the Spirit was doing was operating and moving through each person 
in different gifts and in different ways for the sake of forming a community of equality and self-giving love and non-disabling dependence. So this became a community that ruptured all of the hierarchies that existed and began to love one another as human beings and as sites of the divine, believing that each person in the room had a gift and had something to give um, and that the Spirit continued to bind them together in ways that they felt obliged to care for each other. One of the striking things that happened in the early church, if um, we look at Acts 2 verse 42, so this is kind of like directly after the whole like tongues of fire falling and people speaking in foreign tongues like that. Um, I'm a former Pentecostal, so I tried to teach my three-year-old tongues early. Um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon, upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. Um, many wonders and signs were actually being done by all kinds of people, but, you know, um, even in this text, some people take priority. Um, all who believed were together and had um, things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. I want to highlight that. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. They had this communitarian impulse. Are you hungry? Okay. Um, there's, some food just, there's some food just over there. Uncle Josh, Uncle Josh has got some for you. Okay? You go and see him. Oh, you can't have those crackers yet because they're, they're um, special crackers that we're saving to the end for a banquet of small cracker pieces to fill everyone up with the Lord. Um, they had this communitarian impulse where all of a sudden these gifts broke out, this community was formed, and suddenly they felt like they were obliged to look after each other. So not many of them were wealthy, and there was no social welfare back in that day. And so lots of them just sold their stuff, put it in a common pool, and then let a group of people distribute to the needs of the community as it was met. This is craziness, right? I mean, I know for us this like flashes cult. Um, <laughs> but this, is, this communitarian impulse is strong. Um, they were bound to one another in costly ways because they perceived that's what the Spirit was doing. And this has always been unusual across history, but something in our culture, particularly as inner North folk, <laughs> make this even more difficult and unthinkable. I love that line in um, Kat's song, Aroha Nui, which if you're new, Aroha Nui is a Māori word for big love or wide love or deep love. Um, there's a line in there that says, that I nearly cry at every time, which says, and strangers become family. Because for me, in all of my wild church experiences, the best part of what church has ever done is made strangers family for me. Um, and I think that's the church at its best and most powerful. And for the early church, in a very real sense, in a place where there was very little economic backup, where there were, life was really fragile and really risky, this was true for them in a real sense. Back then, it was odd because of who they shared the common life with. To share your um, stuff with people across racial class and status barriers was unthinkable. But it's interesting now that it's almost impossible to imagine across any barriers because our stuff is ours. 
And the thing that strikes me as odd about this First Corinthian passage from last week is that it's an incredibly shocking, it was a shockingly intimate thing. So these letters weren't read by private readers. Most people couldn't read. They were read out in front of the group. So basically Paul hears about these people showboating in church and writes a letter to publicly shame them. And so this entire community sitting together, someone would read the letter from Paul and everyone would know who Paul was talking about. And so all the show-offs suddenly kind of get told off in front of everyone. And then at the end of reading the letter, they have a conversation about what the letter was about. It's incredibly intimate. And I imagine quite awkward. And what interests me here in a challenge for us as a community is to be a community of enough depth that we require awkward conversations to be had. To have such a strong sense of communal responsibility. To have to negotiate awkwardly what loving commitment within this place looks like. The end goal of these spirit communities is the kind of intimacy that allows them to know and meet each other's needs. That's close enough that they expect to give and receive from one another. Not freestanding islands, but interdependent family. Individualism, this idea of ourselves as individuals rather than as persons, is a modern concept. Humans as self-made autonomous choice makers rather than interdependent, connected, communal beings. The challenge for us as a community um, is trying to negotiate a healthy way of being together and depending on each other. Because I think there's some very good reasons why we don't form these kinds of bonds. And these are varied and complex, um, but I want to point to perhaps a couple of them today, which hopefully we'll get some time to kind of discuss a bit and see what your experience of them are. Um, and these Two things in particular I'm going to be talking about won't be true for all of us. Um, and I'm kind of going to hyperbolize a little bit um, to explain what they are. Um, and they won't be, I don't think any of us like, will completely fall into these categories, but I think um, there might be stuff in them that we relate to. And so the first one, the, one of the first reasons we kind of hold back from this kind of interdependent sense of community, and not just in churches, but in all of our lives, is self-protection from violating authority. Many of us have had experiences in churches and other kinds of communities that became unsafe. And we need to find a safe place. Hurt, control, violations of trust will be part of any human community. But when things are so intense and structured in a particular way that you lose your ability to name where you've been wounded, you lose your voice to confront harmful practices where you no longer have the power to seek peace, to forgive and be forgiven. When you lose your self-efficacy and your humanity, it can be time to seek distance from a community to find a safe space. And I think for lots of people here who have come here as some kind of a refuge and spent a long time sitting on the margins of a community like this, um, it's been a really necessary move because they've been involved in communities where they've lost their voice and they've lost their autonomy. And you've no longer been able to mediate the ways in which people's behavior is impacting you 
And so you actually just need to separate and distance yourself from a community. Um, having heard a lot of stories from people who have found their way here, it's a really common thread within this community that people have had to break away from a community that sustained them in lots of ways, but in the end, particular ways that it was structured began to violate them in ways that they no longer had a voice to stand up for their health and their safety. And secondly, and hand in hand with this, oh, you've got new pants too, this is great. This is like a clothes swap. Um, is the neoliberal impulse of seeing ourselves as autonomous, self-made individuals. Um, I'll post up a bunch of reading and listening this week um, on exactly what I'm going on about because we don't have time to explain it in its fullness here. Oh, <laughs> this is a safe place for everyone. <laughs> but please keep your pants on. It's in our constitution. For podcast listeners, um, my son just pulled his pants down, so... It wasn't anyone else, I promise. Um, but we live in a culture which um, raises ourselves to see autonomy, the freedom to make choices, as our highest value. So essentially the good life is to be free and unburdened by obligations so you can pursue the life you want. And look, there's lots of good things about this idea, but I think there's some really harmful side effects as well. That we raised that life is about keeping as many options open as possible, which means having as few obligations as possible. Getting to choose who we are, where we go, and what we do is to be free. And anything that might encroach on that right is a threat. The dream is to be as free as possible to pursue our desires without anyone else getting in the way of that. But at the same time, we also need enough connection with communities that we're not completely isolated and we're getting relationship and support and all those things that we need. So I've drawn my favorite diagrams are Venn diagrams. Um, so I've drawn a Venn diagram for this. My favorite Venn diagram I've ever seen is a Venn diaphragm, but I'll post that up later. Um, So this is the ideal. You can't, the shaded spot's a bit blurred, but um, what we kind of need or want is maximum freedom and independence. So essentially, no one can tell us not to go somewhere or do something or has any control over our lives. But we also need like the maximum benefit of communities as well, because not many of us can live completely isolated. And so we want support, and kindness, and nourishment, and nurture, and all the great side effects of strong communities as well. And the ideal community for a good neoliberal person is somewhere in the middle, where essentially we can abandon it at the drop of a hat whenever we want, and no one can demand anything of us, because for someone to demand something of us is seen as, has this kind of like authoritarian fascist overtone. And on the other side though, we want to make sure that we're getting something out of it. So the, somewhere in the middle is where we have a community of nurture and support and goodness that has no actual hold over us, that no one's voice can restrict us. So we tend towards communities of convenience. 
And again, this is not just churches. This is like across how we structure our lives. Well, and again, this is a hyperbole. So none of us structure our lives exactly in this way, but these are the temptations of the culture that we live in. So close enough to get what you need, but far enough away that no one can demand anything of you. And it's that demand word, I think, that really um, highlights this. Because it's actually not so much about cost as control. So in these kind of ideal communities that we seek, there's still incredibly generous levels of giving. Um, Participation that costs us something that requires sacrifice only marginally terrifies us, as long as we're in charge of how and when and who we owe what to. But the moment our relationships threaten to limit our options, that's when they become really terrifying. So we're happy to give huge amounts of stuff or act generously, great acts of sacrifice and no problem, as long as we get to be independent, benevolent actors. So if there's a really strong need within the community we're associated with, we're happy to give really generously to it, as long as it's us that gets to choose who gives what and when and how we are able to give. But if anyone might be able to relationally demand something of us, or we might feel that we owe someone something, that really strikes at the core of what terrify, what we're trained to be terrified of. Because then someone's got control over us, and we're no longer free. And positioning ourselves in a way that we might be a burden to others and limit their freedom is just as scary. I tell you this as a parent of young families. It's terrifying to ask for help. And part of why it's terrifying is because I don't want to limit anyone else's freedom. I don't want anyone else to feel like I'm a burden to them. But when you get desperate, you ask. I'll just, oh, hey, Hemi, you know how you're hungry. Who's that person? It's a stranger with candy. It's not, it's Jenny. (laughs) We know Jenny with a pouch. Would you like one of those things? Wow. There are strings attached, and they're tied to the back of the room. (laughs) As will you be. So it's not so much about cost as control. It's not so much about what a community might cost us, because if there's needs that flare up within the community we're associated with, we're happy to give to them, as long as we don't feel actually tied to it. Sociologists worry that a hollow center is forming, that the gap between the kind of individual slash nuclear family, who we still feel reasonably strong obligations to, um, and the state is actually hollowing out. So in recent times, the decline of churches, clubs, guilds, unions, and even neighborhood connections, broader, more robust centers of care, identity, and support are fading away. There's less and less involvement in these... Um, traditional institutions which have sustained communities for long periods of time. Um, There's kind of the state who's responsible for kind of taking care of everyone and then the individual or the nuclear family who's free to move where they want to. And this is leaving us free, but lonely, fearful, anxious, and overwhelmed with the responsibility of having to form a life and identity for ourselves with a little shaping, nurture, and support from a wider community. It also leaves us really fragile if things go wrong. Not many small, loose friendship networks can sustain costly emotional long-term care of um, long-term mental health issues or other health issues, for example. 
So when our needs get really high and we need more than kind of our loose connection of friends are able to provide for us, lots of people don't have anywhere to go. Um, and on a kind of society-wide level, it's a little bit terrifying because lots of people are feeling all at sea. There's also the danger that we don't know how to do peacemaking within communities either because our temptation is that when things go sour, it's easier just to burn a community or a network rather than do the hard work of actually saying what our needs are. It's easier, but is it better? Because every time we burn a community, we burn years of trust, intimacy, insight, and knowledge. The kind of temptation for lots of us, or in, particularly in kind of particular age brackets in the, in the north, is to make our main support network these kind of like loose friendship networks that we move in and out of. High engagement and high vulnerability, but low security. Because who knows who's going to be where in five years' time? Um, some really good friends of ours um, who are parent friends and we've kind of done a few years with and really close with, just one day in conversation, we're just chatting. They're like, oh, yeah, we think we might move to like Bali for a few years next year. I was like, oh, oh okay, I'm glad we're not holding you back. And that's just kind of the reality that like we don't really have any sense of hold or obligation over each other's lives. So you might invest like huge amounts of energy and intimacy and vulnerability into each other's lives. But there's no real sense that that's necessarily going to be ongoing. And I say this kind of like not in a way, um, I just kind of want to acknowledge that this is a part, this isn't just a factor of individuals making bad choices, but it's a byproduct of the way that our work works, the way that our communities are structured, the way that um, we travel. Like, there's lots of factors in this. This is kind of like, it's just the, it's the, it's the, it's the, the water we swim in rather than because we're all making really terrible and selfish individual choices. But I guess what I am trying to name here is that I suspect we might need to f keep exploring some new ways of doing things or some old ways of doing things or some ways of meeting it in the middle. So I think there's two major reasons for avoiding obligations to strong communities. One is about safety and self-efficacy, which I think is really, really important. And the other is about independence, which I think we might need to spend some more time exploring. It just struck me the more, more time I spend with the New Testament, the harder I find it to imagine any kind of community like the ones that they experienced. Oh, and they were, by the way, they were wrecked. Those communities had some really terrible and horrible things happening within them. Um, and they weren't these kind of like golden age, like back in the good old days where everyone was kumbaya, because these communities had terrible stuff happening in them. But the challenge of seeing myself as more than an individual is a really difficult step of imagination for me. The vulnerability of owing a community of people something and them owing me something 
Something about that feels really wrong. But I don't feel like it's the spirit impulse in me that makes it feel really wrong. I feel like it's the individual autonomous part of me that makes it feel really wrong. And I just wonder as the spirit operates in our community, in what is a really transient community for lots of reasons. Again, we've talked about this a lot as a community. This is a space where lots of people are dipping their toe back into communities in ways where they're trying to work out whether it's going to be safe or not. Where they're trying to work out whether Christian spirituality has got life for them or not. In a space where people move all the time in and out of the, in the north. Lots of people can't afford to live here long term. There's lots of complications. Where lots of us are in jobs where we're moved about around the place and have to do that to be able to survive. Um, and so this is not kind of like a, let's start a cult, um, let's all move into this building. Um, I mean, we could, but, you know, we'll talk about that later. That's later down the track. Um, and you're all terrible people for traveling overseas. Like, this is not one of those talks. But it's an invitation to imagination about what is the Spirit doing here amongst us? How is the Spirit binding us together in ways that goes beyond just loose networks of convenience and into a place where we might actually be able to care for each other and love one another, each other and support one another in deeper and more committed ways while not opening ourselves up to fascism and authoritarian control. I mean, it's harder to have three cult leaders for starters, so put some of that in our structure. Um, so some questions we might ask here. Where am I avoiding harmful authoritarian slash disabling control? <laughs> and where am I avoiding interdependence and community to just keep my options open? What practices of interdependence am I fostering? Or are we fostering as a community? And I say this as a person who didn't cook for three months because people in this community made us food when Sam was born, which is such an incredible gift. So lots of this stuff is already happening. Who do I have mutual obligation with? Who might have a voice in the choices I make because it might affect them and not just me? So if I was going to move overseas at the drop of a hat, who would be able to say, I don't want you to, and I don't think that's fair, that we then have to negotiate with? Okay. I've done lots of talking. <laughs> that's what happens when I'm tired. I do all the talking. Um, where do you recognize this, either in yourself or in the way that we structure community? Where do you see hope that we're moving beyond this as a community and as people, not just individuals, but as people? What resonates with you? What do you want to push back about and go, that's not right? Well, that's not my experience. Where do these questions ring true or false for you? Katrina. All right, are you coming with me or I'm going to go for a walk? Go and visit Katrina. Um, I've been thinking recently about often in smaller towns and smaller communities how people. Um, 
sometimes it's a little bit the opposite of this. Everyone's involved in everybody else's lives. Everybody knows everything about each other. Um, so if there's something that happens, everybody chips in and helps. Um, you know, so so there is is that help, and sometimes people want to actually get out of that because they want to feel like they can change and move. But sometimes in the city, if you just need what might be normal help in a small town, everyone expects, oh, it's around, but you have to pay for it. You know, you want help with your family, you want help with your relationship, you want to talk to someone, you pay for the help, which, yeah. Sometimes church is one of the few places left that you might get that or you might not. But but often, yeah, often things are outsourced to professional services now, which is a bit of a shift, I think. I don't know what you think. And it's funny when you mention, I've also lived in a small town and the claustrophobia sometimes of the intensity of that community. Because when people are in need, people find out about it. And when all kinds of other things happen, people find out about it as well. Like, yeah, like there's a, there is a, it is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Like the the vulnerability and intimacy that comes with those kinds of networks, but also having to negotiate them when it's not healthy and good is hard too. Yeah. Mm. And I think the safety thing is a big thing. Like just going going off Katrina's idea of a small town, which I think lots of churches are just kind of like small towns, particularly the church I grew up in, which was an inner city church, but was like a small town. Um, they often tend to have quite rigid is maybe the wrong word, although maybe it's the right word, but like very set ideas of how you should be as a member of that community, which is usually straight, white, middle class. Um, And if you don't fit that mould, then being in that space can be really, really unsafe for you. And as we've created these spaces where there's so much more options for how to be, um it's so much harder to define who your community is because uh, traditionally the community is defined by, oh, well, I'm, I'm in the community because they're, these are my people because we're, we look the same and we speak the same language and we have the same kinds of relationships. So it's also just about kind of reframing everything about how we relate to the people around us. Which is super interesting because so much of the New Testament text is about saying, what does it mean to be a part of this group? Like, I mean, because they're all from different places too. Like, they had the same challenge of going, so what does it mean to be a Jesus person? Who is it that has the spirit? And what does it mean to belong? And how do we negotiate these new power dynamics? But a part of it is, is that people had voice. And this is, I guess, like in the communities you're talking about, only a few people really got to set what it was to belong. And everyone else kind of had to fall in line with that. Yeah. One of the problems can be just finding other people. Even if you're willing to do it, everyone else has to also want to do it. But even if you find a group where people, everyone wants to be that way, allowing people to have that kind of uh, ability to speak into your life, you want to make sure that you agree with how they look at things. So similar to what Kat was saying, you know, if if you allow people to call you on, on things or speak into you and you're like, actually, that's crap, um, you distance yourself just because you're like, actually, I don't want to be influenced by that. 
So it's just very hard to find a group of people that all think the same and want to do that together, even if you're willing yourself. Uh, this is actually something that I've been thinking quite a bit about. I'm not going to lie, I did feel like a lot of that was pointed at me, Shane. Uh, <laughs> having just come back from London and having a job that means I travel quite a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah, sweet, thanks. Uh, yeah, this is, I, I don't think I have anything profound to add, but just noticing this tension in myself of having a job, which means so I leave for work tomorrow and the next time I will be back in Melbourne is the 1st of November. Um, and and then kind of being in this this space of getting a little bit deep here but like choosing whether or not I pursue a certain relationship in my life but also noticing the tension that I find of well if I choose you then I'm limiting myself and if I choose you then that means not only do I limit myself relationally to other people um Myself sound like a bit of a hoe here, but that's not what I mean. Um, but like I, I, yeah, we already know. Um, but then having this, you know, when you're off traveling and you're like, oh, I've spent two days in this country or this city. Now I want to live here. And then going, well, if I if I'm with someone, then I can't do that. And what if I do want to change my mind and and do this and the the tension of wanting to maintain that independence and that that freedom but then also looking at the consequences of what the last two years have been for me where actually un unless I came to church on a Sunday I could actually not interact with anyone of with any real depth for weeks um, that I can have the veneer of connecting and hashtag living my best life but actually a complete deficit of relational depth and then contrasting that with having just gone back to, to London with people that I've journeyed with for 11 years, that I was deeply involved in their lives, being in the pits and, and on mountaintops with them and, and going, well, well, what does that look like to have people who do know you, who can speak into you, but there's also this, in, there's this independence of, well, I can allow you to speak into my life, but also there's a relational depth there where if I choose to do differently, the relationship is still protected. And so it is this real tension of well, how do I maintain freedom and, and individual boundaries within the context of committed, loving, communal relationship. It's definitely something that I'm kind of chewing over in my mind. Thank you. Alan's going to have a turn and then you can have a turn. Um, so this is, again, something that's sort of been uh, prevalent in my mind just recently because, as many of you probably know, um, Claire, my wife and I, were due to have a baby later this week, which, um, due to a scheduling conflict, was born a little over a month ago. <laughs> I know. You know. Someone needs to teach this kid how to read a calendar. Um but, yeah, like we basically got, well, we, we, we were given 48 hours notice and then that rapidly shortened again and we ended up about with a day and a half's notice that we were having this baby now. 
Um, and in the midst of that, and in the midst of both Claire and I sort of melting down and frantically trying to rearrange five weeks' worth of plans and everything else that was going on and uh, in the midst of that, because we have very little family over here. Like, I've got a brother and a sister, um, but that's it. All the rest of both of our families lives interstate or overseas. Um, and this, uh, this, this church feels like something that... I know, because I've been in church before where, you know, like in a situation like that, you feel like, yes, you would get support in the church and there would be certain people that who's, you know, who've sort of almost been pigeonholed into that role. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, yes, this is, you know, and, and usually there'll sort of be middle-aged women um, that would sort of be their, you know, their role to support a family in a time like this. Um, and I look around this church and go... It just doesn't feel like anyone's been pigeonholed into that role. Like, um, you know, I go, well, that that's good because I feel like that puts a whole lot of sort of, it just seems to really limit, I mean, and I'm sure that, you know, for some of those people that have sort of been pigeonholed into it, that's actually what they really find fulfilment in and they draw a lot of meaning from that. But I feel like for other people that would be very limiting and and um, and I, I really like the fact that, you know, I look around here and go, I don't feel like anyone seems to be, have been sort of pigeonholed into that role. But despite that, I just go, wow, but I've just had so many people offer support in whatever way they can and and to just just call me or text me and just make sure I'm doing okay and, you know, not curled up in the fetal position and, and just rocking quietly. And um, for too long, yeah. I mean, there's obviously with, with, you know, with a situation like that, there's always going to be a bit of that going on. Uh, but, um, yeah, it just... I just feel like it just feels so much more like a a community that just wants to do that because because there's no one who it looks like should be doing that. So anyone who does, you just look around and go, "Oh, wow, that's thank you. That's that's so genuine and and um yeah, I I, I really don't know how to phrase it. I'm, you know, st- st- only, you know, I'm only 30, so I'm still learning how to have feelings at all, uh, let alone explain them to other people. Um but I've just been really. I've, there, there was a moment where I was sitting in my office at work, trying frantically to tie, you know, tie things off, in the in the day and a half we got given, so that I could go away and have go and have this baby. Where I'm just sitting at my desk, literally crying and typing an email, going, "Holy crap! There are some amazing people in my life." Um, yeah. So, thank you, everyone. Okay, Hemi, what would you, do you want to sing something or say something? What do you like head? It was um what did do ice cream head, which is um very important phrase in our household. Yeah. Um 
We're running out of time, but any, any, oh yeah, we've got a few, yeah. Um, thanks so much, Shane, for like putting clearly into words stuff that whizzes around in my head and doesn't really make much sense, but I think about. Um, and on a totally practical note, uh, Josh, who's not here today, but uh, lives with me and Tish in a house four blocks away, we often run around Princess Park on Saturday mornings and then have waffles afterwards, and it's a standing open invitation to anybody who wants to come for waffles and or run beforehand. Um, it's really easy to make a ton. Um, yeah, that's Saturday mornings. Basically, we start eating at 9 o'clock at my house. We run at 8 o'clock at, at, at uh, Princess Park if anybody wants to join. It's really lovely. Was there one over here? I um, actually have a friend who's a small-town country pastor in Victoria, and he has to study um, on Tuesdays in, in Parkville, so he often kind of crashes on my couch. And it's really interesting to just discuss all these the differences between his country church and the experiences here. Like, everything is there. It's, like, totally interconnected. And the people that you um, go to church with, the people that you live with, and everyone is, like, everyone knows each other's gossip. And we're having this interesting discussion about how like in, in here you have these, you know, the big thing in church is you have like these sharing groups and where everyone just shares their tips. And that's not a thing in country churches because like if you share someone, it's like you know such and such and they know so and it, and it gets around. Um, but it, it's really interesting. I like I've, we've had a lot of discussion. I almost feel like in some respects this place here has got elements of that in there. When I came to this place from a different church, I wanted had all these people going, come to my church, come to my church, come to my church. And they're all like big churches. But I love here that it's Fitzroy North Community Church is part of a geography that I love the fact that I can see people in the street and it's not like you have to drive half an hour to get somewhere. It's like there's, I go to my the chicken shop and there's someone there that I know. And yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. I kind of hide from the vegans. And um, yeah, I love that there's like, a place here where I can be introverted and hide, but if I need someone, like I, I sometimes just come here just because I just need to be around people that don't require anything of me, that I can just be be there, just get a hug, just sit next to someone, have a knitting buddy, and that's okay. Um, I'm waffling. I'm going to stop. Mm. Um, something that's just been percolating is I, I feel like there are lots of signs that this neoliberal tendency to, you know, just be isolated, independent individuals hasn't quite managed to crush the desire within us for community that people reach out. Like, you think about the kind of TV shows that get super popular. There's always, like, a core group of people who are totally up in each other's lives and, like... So, like, we enjoy consuming that sort of media. We, um, you know, we want to reach out and stuff. But as someone said before, it's just, like, the way the culture is structured makes it super, super hard. And I think that's there within the church, too. Um, When I was a kid in youth group, you know, family troubles, whatever, this kind of thing is sort of what I wanted from the church. That passage that you read, that acts to, like, I was like, yeah, this is what church should be. And I was like, I kept looking around, you know, my church, and when it wasn't like that, then I was like, oh, do I need to find a different church? There'll be one out there that's, that's you know, that kind of perfect community, won't there? Yep, surely. Or some, you know, um, parachurch organization, you know, you'll oh, find it and it'll be amazing. And I guess the continual failure to um, be that 
became disillusioning. And so, like, you know, if you've got this impulse to community that wants something like that, even if it can't name what it is, and it's um, repeatedly kind of disappointed, then you sort of stop looking for it. And I think that sort of um, conditions you to be like, okay, well, I've got to be this independent individual person. And so you get whittled away at to, to become what the economy tries to make us. And but, but that sort of reaching out, we've still got those limbs that just mm. atrophy. Yeah, sure. It's... Um I find that um, that a lot of these questions change over time. Like it it enhances the outcome over time. So so I'm I'm okay with a little bit of authoritarian, a little bit of disabling of control, or a little bit of abuse. But over time, I, I just can't handle it. So um, so there's like a tolerance. But the same happens in the positive. And one one sort of huge experience for me is I was living in um, Hungary for. Um, three months, and I found out that the guy, the guy's house I was living in, um, he had the whole community had come and help him build this house, and it was a family, sorry, it was their house, and it took months that the community came and built this house, and I thought that's so restrictive, you know, imagine having to go out every weekend and help build their house, but then another person would knock down their house and build a house, and the community would then shift to the other one, and so. So over like 10 years, there was like this whole, you know, there's like a massive working bee where they'd gone around and built each other's houses. And so instead, of, so what looked like a, a restrictive, you know, I feel obliged to go and, and help these people do something, they might have turned around and then built my house, so to speak. So, so over time, community can really deepen when it time comes to put your hand up. Um, and I've never felt that um, until I, I moved into Christian circles. And like when you move house, um, you can suddenly get ten people, and the house move is you know takes half a day, as opposed to breaking your back and doing it. Um, and then when someone else needs to move house, like absolutely, I'll help. It's a no-brainer. And I don't, I haven't found that outside of Christian communities. Like you have to pay for you know a man with a van or something like that. So it's so so my, my point being that it may look selfish to ask for it or it may look claustrophobic to like feel obliged to help but over time that changes it, it deepens there's a um really interesting thing i was reading a couple of weeks ago about um oh yes um about um in the in the black church in america and um there's a few of them who are um taking on each other's debt so there's communities with really high levels of crippling crippling debt and so what they do as a community is they take on one person's debt for a period of time and all of them will get that paid off and then take on someone else's debt and all of them get that paid off um, as a way of um, using their kind of like corporate strength to do something that as individuals they can't do but then needing to stick around long enough to have your debt paid too and to pay, and then to pay on someone else's again like just the imagine the role of imagination and how we perceive what community can look like yeah cool last one um, I a, a massive thing that I've learned that has been like has changed my relationships and my view of community has been something that I learned um, from Bonhoeffer, and I'm sure he was talking about it in a very different way. But it's the shift from freedom, freedom from, and freedom to, um, where 
he says, like, I'm, I think he was talking about sin. But in terms of community, like, um, the shift from I'm free from people needing me, I'm free from the constraints of community and, and people asking and demanding things of me, um, to having the freedom to be connected to people, like the freedom to choose to say to people who I'm close to, no, I choose, like, I'm free to choose to be committed to you. And that's not, um, an, an, like, that doesn't impinge on my freedom. That's an act of my freedom to be um, responsible to you and to be connected to you. And that's just, like, messed my life up because now I can't just be like, oh, you have an issue with something that I said. See ya. Like, it's, you, like, I, out of my freedom and my autonomy, I'm choosing to be connected to you. And that means sometimes having my freedom to say whatever I want impinged and some like I'm I'm starting to work through the fact that that might be okay and I might be willing to do conflict for the people that I'm connected to um which has just been huge like and yeah so it's helped me so hopefully some yeah so I guess I just want to just want to acknowledge that these conversations in this imagination is swimming against the current in that sense like Again, like I'm not trying to have a go at each of us as persons, as individuals and in our individual choices, but just to, to try and exercise our imagination a little bit about what might be another way, away from crippling individualism and towards paying attention to what the Spirit might be doing in and amongst this community. Um, yeah. The, going back to the concept of cost isn't our greatest fear, control is. Um, it would be something I'd love to sit with this week as a community and if people have feedback on that, um, that'd be fantastic. I'll point you to um, as many resources as you could possibly ever want to read or listen to around this stuff if you are interested. Um, yeah, there's lots more to say. Cool. Thank you all for participating so openly and honestly um, for allowing the children to have their ice cream head. Also, it's Jesus Juice time now. Um, Hemi's favorite part of the show. Um, as a community, each week we gather around the symbolic meal um, of the one who sent his spirit that all of our bodies might be temples of the divine. The one who invited all to the table, who practiced radical hospitality. So in that spirit, we invite you, if you would like to participate this morning, um, to eat and drink of life, of death, of resurrection, um, of new communities formed of the spirit. Um, we get someone to crack the cracker with the holy knuckle of cracking, um, break the cracker into small pieces. We each take a bit of cracker and a bit of juice. And if you would like to eat and drink together, then please come and take a little cracker and a little juice and then wait until everyone's got some and we'll eat and drink together at the end. Please. If you don't wish to participate, no stress at all. We haven't had a public shaming in ages. Loving God. We thank you for your spirit, and even though we don't always understand what the heck they're up to, 
We ask you to help us to pay attention, to work out ways of loving each other kindly and safely, of committing to each other in ways that don't disable each other, but empower each other. Help us to hold dear our humanity and our freedom, but to also use imagination and how we might commit to each other in ways that we share each other's burdens. Teach us your radical love.